Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Here you'll find archived all of our previous messages dating back to late 2020. Our hope is that today's message would be encouraging to your walk with Christ. We also want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get to it. Amen. Amen. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. The secret of a healthy lifestyle is not a secret. You need to get enough rest. You need to drink enough water. Eat your fruits and vegetables. And you got to stay mobile. For most of us, if you have a job like mine or if you are retired, that means you got to do some form of exercise because while my job is very mentally exhausting and physically and emotionally and spiritually intensive, it's not very physically intensive. So I got to exercise. I got to make time to be mobile. And these are the obvious things that we need to do if we want to be healthy. But they're not enough. It's not enough to just do the right things. It's not enough to just eat your fruits and vegetables if you pour all kinds of garbage on top of them before you swallow them. It's not enough to exercise, to spend time on the treadmill if you're eating a whole large pizza by yourself in the process. We need to be healthy in our choices, both positively, but also negatively, meaning there are things that we all need to stop doing if we want to be physically healthy. Now, those things are pretty obvious. They may not be very comfortable. They may not be very fun to think about, but they're obvious things to think about. But I bring them up in the physical realm because the same is true in the spiritual realm. To get spiritually healthy You also need to get times of rest. You also need to make sure that you are trusting in the hydration, the spiritual hydration of the living water, which we know is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you trust in me, out of you will flow living water. And you need to be walking in the Spirit. You need to be consuming the milk and the meat of God's Word. But You can do all of those things and still struggle spiritually if you don't remove the obstacles to spiritual growth. If you don't stop doing the unhealthy things that are dragging you down, Hebrews tells us that we must not only get rid of the sin that entangles us, but we have to put off the weights, the things that are not sinful, But in our life, they become weights. They hold us back from running the race that God has called us to run. Now, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are messages of encouragement. And both of them were written to spur the believers, both past, present, and future, including us, written to us as well, to spur us to grow in our faith, to abound in our love, and to draw strength from our hope. First Thessalonians 1 verse 3. The church is commended for their work of faith. 
labor of love, and their patience of hope. And that message really continues in 2 Thessalonians. Paul commends them for their growing faith and their growing love, but they were struggling with their hope because of some false teaching that had come into the church. And so part of what Paul has to do is address the false teaching and cut it out, remove it like a cancer that it is in the church to get rid of it so that this church can stop being dragged down by the unhealthy spiritual food that they were consuming. To truly receive the encouragement of God's word and grow in any meaningful way, we have to disconnect from the things that drag us down. And here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to see that means disconnecting from divisive people. Those who would discourage our growth in Jesus Christ. And so as we close this study of this uh, wonderfully encouraging epistle tonight, let us remember that this epistle, this message is really about courage and clarity in the face of conflict. Paul is encouraging a persecuted church. And Paul is writing that to them in chapter 2 and in chapter 1 to reiterate and clarify his teachings concerning the day of the Lord and to stress along with that how we as believers in Christ should live in light of the fact that Jesus' return is imminent. It is imminent and certain that at any moment Christ could come back for his church. So how should we then live? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 closes with a warning and a message of godly division, specifically withdrawing from rebellious Christians. Now let's read these verses together. We'll, we'll read verses 6 through 16, and then we'll spend some time tonight uh, unpacking what Paul sends this church and is speaking through the Holy Spirit to us tonight as well. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother. This is somebody who's truly saved from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which ye have received of us. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power. In other words, not because we do not have the right, Paul says, to be supported by the church. Elsewhere, Paul is going to teach the Corinthians specifically that, hey, you guys need to be invested in those who preach the gospel. You guys need to support them financially so that they are not weighed down uh, working just to make ends meet and to make a living and then they don't have the time necessary to devote to the study of God's word and to prayer for you. And so elsewhere, Paul says, look, you need to be supporting your pastors. You need to be supporting missionaries so that they are freed up to be able to do the work that they need to do for 
your benefit, for your spiritual health and growth. But Paul himself would oftentimes work so that he could support the men who traveled with him. He would be the one not only supporting himself, but he would be the one who would support the missionaries that were going with him because when he was going to plant a church, as he did in Thessalonica, he had not yet taught them that they needed to be able to support their pastors and support missionaries. And so he didn't want to portray himself as somebody who was fleecing them or was just trying to use them to make a quick buck as so many uh, fake TV preachers do today. Brother, just you plant a seed in my ministry and God will bless you tenfold. And if you just give me your thousand dollars, God will turn that into a bountiful harvest for you. And so you sign your check. You just in fact, you can just even use your credit card now. You can bless me and God will bless you. Well, preacher, if you need money, why don't you bless me and God will bless you that way. And then you'll just uh, cut out the middleman. Cut out the middleman. Paul said, I don't want you to get that impression from me. And so even though we have a right, we have set that right aside as we planted your church so that you would learn from us how to work hard and how to serve others. Verse 9, to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, Note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Now let's stop there for a moment. Paul in these verses gives us five truths concerning why, how, and what it means to withdraw from rebellious, disobedient Christians. And the first thing he says in verse 6 is that we are to withdraw from them to be obedient to Christ's command. We are to withdraw from those who call themselves Christians, who are Christians, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, yet who are living a wicked rebellious, sinful lifestyle in order to be obedient to Christ's command. Now, many of you, I'm sure, if you watch the Super Bowl, or even if, like me, you didn't watch the Super Bowl, you still heard about this quote-unquote commercial where we are now using Jesus as a brand to sell our wokeness called He Gets Us. He gets us. And in this advertisement, which was aired on the Super Bowl and has since continued, and you can get online and watch it, it mixes truth with error. 
And it encourages this idea that you can come to Jesus because he gets you and you don't have to change. You don't have to change anything because, see, he gets you the way you are. Well, friend, yes, he does get you the way you are, but because he loves you, he doesn't want to leave you the way you are. He wants to change you. He wants to transform your life. He wants you to turn from the sin that is destroying you so that he can bring healing into your life. It really irritated me. And there was a number of parts of that commercial that are very offensive, and it's just saturated with this self-righteous wokeness that has infected the church today. But it ends with Jesus, and then in the name Jesus, they highlighted the us. Because Jesus, it's really about us. Jesus, us. Oh yeah, Jesus is all about us. What can Jesus do for us? Friend, that is not the Jesus who went into the temple and flipped tables. That's not the Jesus who called people whitewashed tombs, who called them dogs, who confronted their sin. He did it with outstretched arms, ready to forgive. He did it with the mentality that he would give his very life for them and would die for them and would pay for their sins. Jesus paying for the sins of those who ripped his beard out of his face and lashed his back and nailed his body to that cross. Jesus said, I'm laying my life down. No man is taking it from me. I am laying it down. I am giving it to you. And even on the cross, he showed himself a savior to that one thief who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is a savior, but he is a savior who, dem who demands repentance before he saves. In Luke 24, hours after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus meets with his disciples. There were the ten. Thomas was gone. Of course, Judas was long gone. He was way gone. But there were other disciples there as well. The two on the road to Emmaus, for example, and others. And Jesus said that you must preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's why Jesus died for us. To pay for our sins. That's why Jesus rose again. So that we can have eternal life. But we must turn from our sin and turn to the one and only Savior that God has provided. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. The one who would tell the church in the Great Commission. All authority has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Commands us to withdraw from those who call themselves Christians, who are living rebellious, defiant lifestyles. Do not pretend that you are holier than Jesus by mocking obedience to Jesus and calling those who are being obedient to Jesus' command to withdraw. Oh, you're just holier than thou. You're self-righteous. Friend, you are the one being a Pharisee if you think that you are holier than Jesus and you do not need to withdraw from the people that Jesus has commanded us 
to withdraw from. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you are more loving than Jesus because he gets us. Number two, we withdraw to be obedient to Christ's command, but on what basis do we withdraw? We withdraw on the basis of, notice this, lifestyle disobedience to apostolic teaching. Let me read it again. Ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. That walketh. That means it's a lifestyle. It's a pattern. It's not somebody screws up and you judge them for the rest of their life by their worst day or their worst moment. That's not what Paul is saying. When somebody fails, we don't automatically brand them with the scarlet letter, whatever letter that may be, and then we just abandon them to second-class Christian status for the rest of their life. But when somebody is following a pattern of rebellion and sin in their life, when there is a lifestyle of disobedience, notice, to the tradition which he received of us, Paul is specifically talking about the New Testament teachings because there were things that were true before Jesus died and rose again that are no longer true for us today because the law has been fulfilled. You cannot live under the law of Moses anymore. That's why Paul wrote the book of Galatians. That's why later he took the book of Galatians and he expanded it in the, to the book of Romans. That's why we have the book of Hebrews. The law has been fulfilled. The sacrificial system is, is gone. It's over. There was a once-for-all sacrifice. The veil in the temple was torn in two. We now have direct access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. Christ, the once for all sacrifice for sins. You don't need to bring your your uh, lambs. You don't need to bring your turtle doves. You don't need to bring your animal sacrifices or even your grain sacrifices to the Lord. We are not under the law of Moses. It has been fulfilled. And Hebrews says it has no power anymore. It is powerless now. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that the law is good. I better move this mug before, I, before somebody gets a bath, namely, namely the microphone, right? Paul tells Timothy the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing that the law no longer has the power to tell us how to be righteous, but it still retains the power to convict of sin. In other words, if it was a sin before the law of Moses, and the law of Moses revealed it to be a sin, it's still a sin. It, it's not that we can now go, go into the things that were sins in the past, and now they're no longer sins because, well, that was a long time ago when we've just culturally matured, and so now we understand those things aren't really sins anymore. And we take our Sharpie and we cross out verses that we don't like in the Old and in the New Testament, especially in places like Romans chapter 1. But we are to recognize that the apostles' doctrine, it does not replace the Old Testament, but it explains the Old Testament. It interprets the Old Testament. It applies it to our lives now living on the other side of Calvary. Everything changed when Jesus walked out of that tomb. And everything changed again on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell and gave birth to the church. 
Everything changed. And so Acts 2.42, this newborn church gathered around the apostles' doctrine. They gathered around the things that, that Jesus was now explaining and now teaching and new light given to, things that were prophesied in the Old Testament that now we can see and understand and we can now claim as New Testament Gentile Christians. So we need to be submissive and obedient to the apostolic teaching. We withdraw from those who are rebellious to the apostles' teaching. We don't withdraw on the basis of cultural pressures. We don't withdraw on the, on the basis of emotional appeals or personal preferences. Well, I don't like the way that they do church over there, so I'm not going to fellowship with them. Well, do they preach the gospel? Well, yeah. Well, are they living in sin? Well, no, but I don't like the way that they dress at church, or I don't like the way they do music at church, or I don't like that they do this or they do that. We withdraw for all the wrong reasons, and we don't withdraw for the reasons God commanded us to withdraw. We must withdraw on the basis of lifestyle Disobedience, not cultural, not what society says, not what uh, uh, our emotions say to us, not on our personal preferences. Now, how should we define lifestyle disobedience? Let me just give you, I'm, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but let me just give you some highlights from the scripture. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but let me give you a few examples from the scripture on things that the Bible calls lifestyle disobedience. First of all. Foolish living, foolish living. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. If someone is living a foolish lifestyle, if somebody is living a self-destructive lifestyle, and you hang out with them, and you want to do life with them, guess what's coming for you? you are going to get hit with the fallout of their catastrophic decisions. And some of you can give testimony to that because you're, you have that in your family. And, and it's not, you, you know, God has placed you in that family. God, God has, has called you to love your family and, and to be a missionary in your own family. But when it, why would you choose that outside of your family? Why would you choose that because of how funny somebody is or how somebody... Uh, how because well I've known them since I was in kindergarten well good for you but just because you've been friends with somebody since kindergarten is no reason to let their self-destructive lifestyle destroy your life their horrible testimony impact your testimony foolish living number two violent living Proverbs chapter uh, 28 uh, verse 7 says this Proverbs 28, 7, Whoso keep the law is a wise son, but he that is a companion of riotous men shameth his father. Foolish living, violent living. How about what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 18? Ongoing unrepentance when you have wronged a brother and that brother or sister comes to you and confronts you and you say, I'm not going to repent of that. I'm not sorry for what I did to you. I'm not sorry for what I, the lie I told about you. And so they go and they, and they, in obedience to scripture, they bring along two or three witnesses, right? They bring along uh, somebody and in the presence of two or three witnesses and, and you're confronted again. I'm not going to, I'm not sorry for that. I'm not going to repent of that. 
then it becomes a public church issue. And then Jesus says, when they won't even respond to church discipline, then we are to treat them as a non-believer, as a tax collector, as somebody who doesn't even know Jesus. Ongoing unrepentance doesn't mean they're not saved, but it means that that's how we're, we're to see them evangelistically. Ongoing unrepentance when, when wronging a brother. Number four, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 through 6. Unrepentant sexual sin. When somebody is engaged in unrepentant sexual sin, we are to mark that person and we are not to do life with that person because there are consequences that are coming for them and, and especially if they're a child of God. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, when I told you don't associate with sexually immoral people, I wasn't talking about the non-Christians, guys. I wasn't talking about your mission field. I wasn't talking about the people that you need to connect with so you can share Christ with them. I'm talking about the Christians. I'm talking about people who claim Christ and they're living a sexually immoral lifestyle. You need to separate yourself from them because the Father's going to bring the discipline. And you don't want to be in that trajectory of God's discipline on that, on that person just because of how long you've been friends or how funny they are or how they make you feel or just because they've been such a good friend to you. And so you're going to put yourself in a position where God's discipline is coming. God's discipline is coming. So you want to steer clear of that. You want to let the Lord handle that. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, I delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan so that they'll be taught not to blaspheme. Paul told the Corinthians, you need to deliver this one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might, be, might find repentance so that he'll... He'll realize what he is doing. Unrepentant sexual sin. Number five, theological divisiveness. Theological, we've, we've touched on this a number of times. The word here is, is the Greek word from which we get the word heretic. It speaks of sectarianism. To choose, I have an opinion on something. Is it based on scripture? No, it's based on my opinion. And I'm going to build a whole doctrine around it. And I'm going to build a whole group around it. And, and the people who follow me, they're going to take up my name and they're going to call themselves Richieites. Well, I'm a Richieite. No, you're an idiot if you're a Richieite. <laughs> only, only people allowed to take up my name are my wife and my son, okay? Because they're my, they're, my, they're my family. But we see, we see all, all, all kinds of this today. People get, boy, you see it on the internet. You, I mean, you saw it before the internet, but you, you see it even more on the internet. Everybody's, let me, let me give you something, a new revelation. Oh, there's a new revelation. Everybody else has had it wrong, but I figured it out. So you better, you better follow me. Be a follower of me. Uh, you need to mark that person and avoid them. Number six, uh, habitual laziness, which is what he talks about here, somebody who will not work, and or, because you can have one or the other, but usually they go together. A lazy person who's also a busybody. The word busybody literally, fooling, someone who's fooling around. Somebody who's, bu who's busy about everybody else's business but their own. That's a busybody. And when somebody's a busybody, you don't, want, you don't want any part of that. Somebody's always gossiping, telling you about so-and-so, telling you about so-and-so, tearing down so-and-so, tearing down so-and-so. What do you think they're going to do when you're not with them? 
What do you think they're going to say about you? I mean, they, they, they talk about all their other friends, this and that, and blah, 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 blah. What do you think they're going to say about you when, when, he, when they're with them? Talking about you, you think it's all going to be praises and singing your praises and, and, and cheering and blessing your name. No, they're going to do to you what they do to everybody. They're going to mess with your business the way they mess with everybody else's business. So when somebody refuses to work, Paul says they shouldn't eat. So that brings us to the third thing. The third thing in verses 7 through 13. We withdraw to be obedient to Christ's command. We withdraw on the basis of lifestyle disobedience, not because somebody screwed up one time, not because they had a bad week or a bad day, but because they refuse over time. They, this is how they live, and they refuse to deal with it. They refuse to repent. There's no growth. There's no change. And then number three, we withdraw while imitating the apostles' work ethic. See, Christ said in Mark 10, I didn't come to be served. Not this time. Not in my first advent. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Paul says, you know what? I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. The best thing you can call me is not apostle. The best thing you can call me is steward, is doulos, is slave of God. That's my highest title. That's my highest calling. And by the way, that's one you can share in. I'm not an apostle, but I am a servant for better or worse. Whether I'm a good servant or a bad servant, I am. And in Christ, you are a servant of the most high God. That is the highest title you can wish for. Better a servant in heaven than a king in hell. And so we need to have that work ethic as a servant of the Most High God. And we, like Paul, must lead by example, always loving, never leeching. You know anybody that leeches? It's always what can you do for me? Not what can I do for you? Those people, they're always... I had a neighbor when I lived in Virginia. Every time but the last time, he paid me back. It was always, hey, can you, can you give me 20 bucks? I need to go get some groceries. Can you do that? And he was a veteran, and I wanted to you know, honor his service, and I wanted to be a good neighbor and a good example. And I, you know, I'm, so you know, I would help him out. And, and now as I read these scriptures, I think, was I really helping him out? Because Paul says, uh, if any would not work, neither should he eat. I'm not talking about somebody who can't work, okay? Listen, he's, he's, not, he's not saying if you, if you can't work anymore or if you can't do anymore because of some health condition or some uh, uh, situation in your life. And you are, God knows your heart. God knows your situation. Preacher doesn't need to know. God knows. But what is it that God knows? If somebody will not work, because they're just a busy body, they want to be about everybody else's business, and they leech, they don't love. Paul says, you shouldn't be giving them handouts, church. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't be giving them handouts. Hand up, yes. Give somebody a hand up, absolutely. Don't be so proud that you never help anybody. Yes, we give somebody a hand up, but we're not to give handouts to those who refuse to work. And so we must withhold the supper from the sluggard. 
Christ commands the lazy and the busybody to take personal responsibility. Look again at verse 12. Them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. By the way, work does not mean work at a job. Some of you work at home. And I've been a stay-at-home dad, and work at home is work, okay? So he's not saying you better make a paycheck. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you better be somebody who's serving. You serve your family, you serve your church, you serve your community, you serve. That's what he's talking about. And when you do that, you take responsibility. What does it mean to take personal responsibility? Let me very quickly give you three things. Number one, it means you work when and while you can. See, this is a church that because of prophecy, hey, the Lord can come back at any moment. Paul thinks he's going to come back in his lifetime. He's looking for the Lord's return, so it must be pretty soon. So uh, why, why should we work if Jesus is coming back at any moment? So prophecy was keeping them passive, but then also persecution was keeping them passive. Well, why should I work? I'm, just, I'm probably just going to lose this job anyways. I lost the last job because I'm a Christian. I'll probably lose this job too, so why work? And, and God says, don't let prophecy or persecution be an excuse to live passively. Work when you can, work while you can, because Ecclesiastes 12 says there's a day coming for all of us, if the Lord tarries, when we will no longer be able to work. So do it while you can. Number two, mind your business. Mind your business. Tony Evans said, this is a reminder that if you don't occupy your time with the right thing, you're going to occupy it with the wrong thing. Busy bodies mind everyone's business but their own. And number three, learn to feed yourself. Yes, you may need. Yes, you may need to humble yourself and ask for help. For some of you, the problem isn't that you want help all the time. It's that you, you're too proud to receive anybody's help. That's another issue. That's another sermon for another time. But... You need to learn to feed yourself. Take care of yourself. That's what it means to grow up and be mature, is that we provide for our own needs. We have an entire culture that is being empowered and encouraged to be dependent. And the reason that they want them dependent is because they want them submissive. It's not because these Marxist globalists are so compassionate. You think the... You think the billionaire is pushing for socialism and social Marxism because it's going to affect their bottom line? Oh, they talk about all the money they're going to donate. Well, when, a lot of times you find out the money. I'm not, making a, I'm not naming names because I'm not, uh, not going to go through and defend every, everything I'm saying w on every individual person. So let me just say generally speaking. You know what a lot of these billionaires do, don't you? They create these nonprofits and then they donate to themselves and then they get their tax write-offs for donating to themselves through their nonprofits and maybe they don't donate directly to themselves maybe they do donate to their buddy's nonprofit and then their buddy donates to their nonprofit and then of course because they're the CEO of the nonprofit they got to have a nonprofit paid for vehicle and a nonprofit paid for travel expense and and these people they've uh, found that these corrupt uh, robber barons, okay, going back to the birth of the steel industry and the oil industry, and I won't name names, but you know who I'm talking about. 
they figured out that the way they could get public opinion on their side after they were abusing people and taking advantage of people and and paying off politicians and getting laws passed that benefit them. You know, by the way, you know the NFL is a nonprofit. Do you know that they're registered as sports entertainment like the WWE? That means if there's cheating in an, in an NFL game, they're not legally responsible. They're just legally responsible to provide you entertainment. Not a fair game. Don't believe me, check that out yourself. But these billionaires and these organizations and these robber barons figured out, hey, we can, we can get the government, the, we can get the people on our side by getting the government to give us these nonprofits and, and get us this status. And now we are philanthropists. And now we have institutions that are named after us. And now everybody thinks of us in a positive way because the school is named after me, the hospital is named after me, the such and such is named after me. But really, you're a thief and an extortionist. So learn to feed yourself, take responsibility. Don't be distracted or envious of the sluggard. Paul says, look, I know there are people not carrying their weight. That shouldn't affect you. That's not an excuse for you. Well, why am I carrying twice the load? That's not an excuse for you to check out and stop serving. That's not an excuse for you. Paul says, ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Be not weary. You, you keep your hand on the plow. The master sees what you are doing. The master sees what they're not doing. You're not living to please people, hopefully. You're living to please me, Jesus says. So you keep your hand on the plow. Don't look back. Keep working. Keep serving. And I'll take care of you when I come get you. Number four. Let me cover these last two very quickly. Verses 14 and 50 again. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Paul says you need to withdraw from the rebellious by marking them and avoiding them. But he doesn't stop there. Notice the next verse. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The word admonish to warn them. In other words, you don't treat them like your enemy. You treat them like family. And do families sometimes butt heads? Yes, we do. But when somebody is in sin, we treat them as a brother, but we, we, don't, we don't hang with them while they are in sin. We warn them because we love them, not because we think we're better than them, not because we're holier than thou, but because if we truly love them, we need to let them know. And I, somebody shared with me just recently uh, uh, something that had happened between them and another family member where they had to confront that family member and that family member for a long time was very unhappy but then eventually that family member came back to them and said you know i appreciate what you said you were right and god used that in my life to get me back on course and i just want you to know i appreciate i didn't like it at the time i didn't appreciate it at the time but i appreciate it now and so we need to yes Mark, and yes, avoid, but also admonish, encourage. The goal is always repentance and restorations as brothers. We want them to be obedient to the Father. We want them back serving the family of God. And that is always the goal. That's how we should pray. That's how we should uh, uh, treat 
the situation. Paul says in Romans 16, verse 17, I beseech ye, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them, for they are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by doing good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the simple. Don't be deceived by the disobedient. Don't get sucked in by how they talk about you so pleasantly and so politely and they praise you. Don't get sucked in. Oh, man, I've seen this. I've seen Christians do this. Christians living in sin, Christians in the wrong, but he's he or she is going to try to get everybody on their side. So they're going to butter you up and talk you up and talk that other person down. Don't get drawn into that. Don't get sucked into that. Warn them, admonish them, pray for them. But until they repent, you need to mark and avoid them. And here's the last thing I'd say in verse 16. Why do we withdraw? We withdraw from the rebellious because we want to be in true peace. You will have no peace in your life if you surround yourself with rebellious Christians, disobedient Christians, Christians under the discipline of God because of their lifestyle disobedience. We withdraw to be in the true peace of Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Only the Prince of Peace can bring you true and lasting peace. And the Prince of Peace can bring it, notice, in every circumstance. No matter the trial, no matter the pain, no matter the situation. And there's going, if you're obedient to this, there's going to be some pain. They're going to call you names. They're going to accuse you of being the Pharisee. They're going to accuse you of being the holier than thou. Had a, uh, had a, a friend um, get online a number of years ago. And he had uh, had some public failures. Let's just leave it at that. And he was online complaining about everybody who was criticizing him. And all these self-righteous Christians and blah, blah, blah. And all these judgmental Christians. And I just typed, stop judging the judges. And he, he got the point. And he, he said, DJ, you're right. You're right. I get, I, get, I get it. I get the point. The, the question isn't, do you judge? The question, do you judge biblically? Judge not lest ye be judged, but then Jesus goes on in Matthew 7 to tell us how to judge, how to be helpful. We're not to judge hypocritically while we have a two-by-four in our own eye. We're not to judge superficially and, and judge people based on their roots. We are to judge, though, based on their fruits, based on the, the, the things that come out of their mouth and out of their life. We are to be discerning. Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them. But we withdraw into the wholeness and the peace that Jesus Christ brings us, even when those relationships, friendships are fractured because of our obedience to Christ. Jesus is the one who gives us true peace. Now, remember that word peace in Greece, in Greek, peace in Greece. The word peace in the Greek literally means wholeness. It means wholeness. You'll never feel whole apart from Jesus Christ. Not for long, not for very long. Sin can give you pleasure, but it can never give you peace. What we need is peace, and that's only in Christ. So let me close with this, verses 17 and 18. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul personally closes his letter with a blessing of Christ's grace. That word grace means favor, 
All of us need God's grace. Now, if you're already a Christian, what you need is serving grace. You need the favor of God on your life to bless you in your service, to bless you and give you the ability to work hard when you can, while you can, and to be obedient to the commands of Scripture. But if you're here tonight or watching tonight and you don't know Christ, what you need more than anything in all of the world is saving grace. And the only way that you can get saving grace, it's one way, it's by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died for you. He paid your sin debt on the cross and he rose again victorious. And if you'll admit that you're a sinner who needs forgiveness, who needs a savior, and you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, if you will call on him and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, but I know you died for my sin. You paid the price. I know you rose again. And right now I receive you as my savior. And, and Jesus, I turn from my sin and turn to you. Will you save me? And if you will pray that from your heart and mean it, you will be saved. I prayed that prayer. Have you? We're going to have a short time of invitation. We're not going to sing a song, but I don't know what your need may be tonight. Maybe it's a need that you can do business with God right where you are. But if you need to come to the altar to pray, or if you need to come to pray with one of our deacons, one of our deacons' wives, I'm going to give you a few moments to just do business, you and God, in your heart right now. Father, I thank you for the grace and mercy that is available at the throne of grace. Father, I thank you again tonight for the access that we have as your children at all times. When we can't sleep at night, when we're stressed out in the morning, when we're driving to or from where we need to go, when we've got the weight of the world on our shoulders, God, the the access, the immediate instant access into the presence of our Heavenly Father. Father, again, we thank you that you give that access to your enemies if they'll come on the basis of repentance and faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Instant access into the throne room of God to find forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Father, this is a an encouraging lesson with a challenging conclusion. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us the grace to absorb and to embrace all of this epistle, beginning to end, to live it out in obedience, to work hard at serving you, and, God, to do it with the hope that we know that you are coming again. Our hope not in this world, but in our Savior who's coming again. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray tonight. Amen.
God bless you. I hope to see you on Wednesday night at 6.30, 6.15 for Awana for our kids. Uh, next Sunday night for our movie night. God bless you. You are dismissed. And again, I do need to meet with the deacons just very quickly tonight. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior and you'd like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. If you've never joined us in person, we have services multiple times throughout the week that we would love to see you at. They are Sunday morning Bible study at 9.15 a.m., Sunday morning service at 10.30 a.m., Sunday evening service at 6.30 p.m., and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. We also have opportunities for our students to gather. The youth group for grades 6 through 12 meets at 6 o'clock p.m. on Sundays, and our WANA program for 6th grade and under meets at 6.15 p.m. on Wednesdays. Again, we thank you for joining us today, and we hope to see you soon. But until next time, stay faithful.